so I was driving the kids to school on Tuesday, and uh, we started talking about Puxatani Phil. Does anybody know who Puxatani Phil is? He's the groundhog. Uh, we talk about him a lot because my kids think it's my favorite movie. Groundhog's Day, which is correct. It is my favorite movie. Uh, but it came up because uh, it's been very cold, right? And the weather has not been good. And if you remember, uh, Puxatawney Phil said we were going to have an early spring this year. Is anybody aware of that? Um, that little guy's supposed to be clairvoyant, and he was wrong, right? Uh, Nora knows this about me, and so we were driving to, to school, and she just said, um, has it been six weeks? And I said, yes, Nora, it has been six weeks, but sometimes that little gopher lies. That's what I said to her. Uh, living in the, mid in the Midwest in the winter is not for the faint of heart. I, I understand that. Um, and I am kind of experiencing it in new ways this year as well. But uh, the interruption of snow that we've had over the past few weeks has really kind of reminded me again, has reminded me afresh of how good it is uh, to be together. How good it is to be together. And it always reminds me also of the book of Acts. In the early part of the book of Acts, after uh, a number of Jewish people from all over the world came to faith in the Messiah and Jesus, the book of Acts says that they didn't give up gathering together daily, that as often as they could. They went to the temple together to pray, and they met in homes, they broke bread, they ate pizza, they did that type of stuff together. Because I think it became quite obvious to them really early on that they needed each other. They needed each other. And that the primary way that God communicates who he is, is in and through the lives of his people. This is what the scriptures say. And, the church, and, uh, the, and Christ, in fact, I think, is most realized in our world as his people gather together. This is what the word church means in Greek. The word is ekklesia, and it just means a people that are called together for a purpose. That's what the church is. And so, uh, it's good to have a slightly normal Sunday. <laughs> it's good to gather together. Because the truth of the matter is, is that I need it. I do. This is completely a selfish message today. I need to see people. I need to hear how you're doing I need to uh, involve myself in your lives. Um, I need it. I need it. And I think even if, and in, when you've been cooped up in your house for four weeks, you become uh, abundantly aware of how much you need other people. Um, but it's true. It's true. And leaning into that reality, I think, is so important for the church and for our church to know that as we gather together, it is the place where God meets us. Wherever two or three is what the scriptures say. But specifically on Sunday mornings, it's not uh, mandatory that we all come to church every Sunday. The only person who has to do that is me. But, uh, <laughs> but it is good to remember what we're doing when we, when we gather together. So, uh, we are continuing today our sermon series that we began a couple of weeks ago. But specifically today, we're picking up in kind of a part two of our sermon series <clears throat> excuse me, entitled Whole, that is all about becoming a whole person, both emotionally and spiritually. We began with this kind of idea that God wants us to be whole and holy people. That's the premise of this sermon series. People who have allowed the work of Jesus, excuse me, to redeem us, to redeem us, uh, that we've allowed the work of Jesus to make us, in the, in the language of the Bible, holy people, holy people. 
Now, commonly, when we think of the word holiness, what we think about is a kind of religious moralism, right? In our, in our world, that is what comes to mind. Like, God has this cosmic Excel spreadsheet. Is, any, is anybody spreadsheet people in this place? A couple people. Yes, the accountants raised their hand. We got two accountants in the building, and they love it. Um, I was having a meeting today with another guy who I know loves, loves uh, spreadsheets, and he was talking about a person who uh, he hired at work, and he said, she's really good at spreadsheets, Nick. You should see the spreadsheets she produces. And I said, I said it was Mike Sullivan, so I, I'm just putting him on blast because he's not here. Uh, and I said, Mike, I think your love language is spreadsheets. <laughs> I said, my love language is block cheese, but your love language is spreadsheets. Uh, no, but that's kind of what we think about when we think about God, that God is this kind of cosmic spreadsheet keeper. And in order to be holy, we have to be on the right God side of the ledger. So there's like this big ledger, and on one side is all of the stuff that's not fun to do, but that God wants us to do. And on the other side of the ledger is all the stuff that is fun to do that we're not supposed to do. And the point of holiness is to get more check marks on the God side of the ledger, right? This is what we think. But this is the system of religious moralism that most of us are handed. I, I honestly think that. But that's not what holiness means in, in a, within a biblical context, actually. Holiness isn't about putting check mark, more check marks on the holy side than on the other side of the ledger. Biblically, holiness is about allowing our lives to be suffused with the life and love of God. That's what holiness is. You see, in Jesus' death and resurrection, God unleashed a kind of cosmic revolution, a plan of redemption, in which, through Jesus, God is about his plan of putting the world back together, putting it right. And this process begins with the restoration of our lives back to God through the person of Jesus, right? But that is just the beginning of what God wants to do. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full, to the full. And so, a Christian is one who follows the way of Jesus, understanding that they're, they're uh, in their following of Jesus. They are allowing the life and love of God to restore, renew, and transform them. This is what a Christian is. And they understand that God wants to make them, or us, whole to make us whole. And God is inviting us into a way of life where we are able to grow into greater levels of both spiritual and emotional health. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus or to pursue the way of Jesus. This is why we have the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality available for you out in the lobby to purchase if you want to do that or steal it, whatever. And last week we started digging into one of the primary areas of what I think, uh, one of the most important areas, actually, that I think contributes to our emotional health, and that is dealing with our past, dealing with our past. You know, I'm convinced that allowing God to help us deal with our past is such a vital part of what it means to follow Jesus into the wholeness that has been made available to us through him. And last week we talked about how in healthy churches people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and love others. That was kind of the thesis for last week. But what I've come to realize is that we need to settle in on it for a little bit more, for a few more minutes this week. So that's what we're going to do. Now, 
primarily because I know that it's difficult to look back. I know that this process of looking back is often a difficult one, which is why we've made some tools available to you to help you in that process. And the primary tool that we talked about last week was called this thing called the genogram. The genogram. Now, the genogram is not to be confused with the Enneagram, which is another thing that we made available for you, uh, which is a personal assessment, which is also not to be confused with Instagram, which is a social media app that's meant to make you feel bad about yourself. Um, we have a lot of grams, don't we? Anyway, the genogram is just a helpful tool for mapping out on paper some of the connections of our past. It's just a tool uh, to get us looking, to get the ball rolling, really, at looking at our past. And here is kind of a simple example of a genogram. I believe this is mine, actually. So uh, this is a simplified version of a genogram because I didn't want to put my whole family on blast, but you can kind of see the structure of my family. Those top four names are my four grandparents, and you can see some things about them. Uh, the crosses inside of their circle or square is people who are... Uh, people who had a vibrant faith as followers of Jesus. Um, you can see, you kind of see it all right there. You know, doing, uh, doing a genogram like this is really helpful. Uh, I didn't put anybody's controlling issues up there except for mine because I figure, hey, this is what pastors do. They tell everybody publicly what their controlling issues are. Uh, so I have the, by my name there, wanting people to like me and fearful of not working hard enough, right? So there you go. Now you know exactly what I deal with in, internally on a daily basis. So that's a genogram. All right, you can take it off the screen. People are just going to study it. <laughs> that's a genogram. Uh, it's, it's just a way of looking at our families. And I, I said last week, and I will say again, that uh, doing this, the process of a genogram, and the, we have that available for you out on the coffee bar. If you're in one of our home groups, this is what you'll be doing over the next couple of weeks. You'll be all doing a genogram together and kind of walking through that process of just uh, helping to come to a fuller understanding of our families of origin and how that affects our present reality. So that's a genogram. All right? All right. That's, I just wanted to throw it up there one more time because I didn't put one up last week. All right. Uh, this, the genogram is not uh, a magic wand that just makes you be able to address your past easily, but it, it's just a tool that helps us invite God into the middle of this process of looking at our past and allowing him uh, to heal and restore us as we walk about, as we walk through this process of looking at our past. Because the truth is that God actually does want to heal and redeem our past. He he does not want to just move into the, he does not want us just moving into the future lugging around the issues that we carry right but he also doesn't want to and i just this is just a quick note before we get into things he does not want to erase our past i think sometimes when we think of um the healing work of jesus we think of our past as being kind of erased and got and and it going away and then a new thing happening in the future and i and while I understand why we think about that, I, I honestly don't think that's what God wants to do. I use the word redeem very specifically here. I think God actually wants to redeem our past, to redeem our past. past. You know, the gospel writers who record the resurrection of Jesus make it quite clear that Jesus, even post-resurrection, bore the marks, the scars of his crucifixion. Because even though the crucifixion was brutal, and sinful, and a humiliation. God turned it on its head and used it for a kind of cosmic good. 
And those signs of the crucifixion, those holes in his hands and his feet, that uh, gash in his side made by a Roman spear, were now, in the hands of God, signs of victory over sin and death. And in the same way, God will not cause you or me to simply forget our past, but will redeem them. We'll turn it on its head and use it for good in our lives and in the lives of other people. That's just the way that God works. That's just the pattern that God functions in. He redeems our brokenness, and he uses it for his kingdom purposes. And what was once a kind of black mark on our past was what's something that we kind of pushed down and tried to forget. God uses as the very thing in our lives to display his glory. And so today, I want to build, like I said, I want to build off our message from last week and talk about a little bit about how dealing with our past and specifically some of the destructive patterns and habits, excuse me, that we take on from our past is a, uh, is a part of this process of looking at our past and addressing, and addressing it. So this week, we're going to do that. And then next week, as I said, uh, the right Reverend Daniel Quimby will talk a little bit about uh, adding in new patterns and new habits to our lives that help us move forward. So, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, will you take them out? And you can turn to uh, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can do it on your phone, if you, in case you didn't know that. Or uh, you can look at the screen as well. You can work at the screen as well. And now what I want to do today is just kind of walk through the family lineage of King David and look at how things passed from king to king to king for four or five generations underneath David and kind of see what, how the, the patterns or the habits or the structures of uh, the past affect uh, present situations. So if any of you are familiar with the story of Israel, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. God said of David that he was a man after his own heart. Now, David was most certainly flawed. He had a lot of problems, and, and almost all of the issues that we see following him were present in seed form in David's life or overtly in David's life. But David is held up in the scriptures as a kind of paragon, one whose life uh, wasn't always perfect, but whose heart was turned towards God. And uh, And while David was very sinful and set up some patterns for his family that were not good, he, does, he is held out as a, kind of, um, as a kind of example to us. But, you know, David did have some problems. He did have some hang-ups. He committed adultery and murder. When you're the king of a country and you commit adultery and murder, you don't have to go to jail, I guess. That's not the case with us. Uh, he, had a, he had some hang-ups with women, he had multiple wives. He had a number of concubines. This was kind of the world in which he lived in, yes, but it was also a problem. And we can track many of David's issues down through his family, through his sons and their sons and their sons. And you see this specifically picked up in David's uh, direct heir, his son Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, it says this, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Mobobites and Amorites and Edomites and uh, Sidians and Hittites, 
That's some names. Uh, They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of David his father had been. Yeah, surprise, surprise, right? Uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah, his heart wasn't in the right place, correct? Surprisingly enough. Uh, you know, and it doesn't get better from here in this family lineage. If you turn a few cha- three chapters further over in 1 Kings 14, verses 21, we read about Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Now, things go very badly in the nation of Israel after Solomon. Solomon is not able to keep the kingdom together, and it's broken into two. And Rehoboam, his son, begins to rule over uh, really what is just one tribe, with ten, o- ten of the other tribes uh, having broken off from uh, from Judah, which was the tribe that he was the king of. And it says this in 1 Kings 14, verses t- uh, verse 21. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he uh, reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out for the tribes of Israel, in which to put his name. His, mother na- his mother's name was uh, Nama. She was an Amorite. Remember the Amorites from up uh, in Solomon's story there? Uh, Judah, uh, uh, Judah, which was the, the tribe, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those before them had done. So Judah is the tribe that Rehoboam ruled over, right? So by saying that Judah did evil means Rehoboam was not leading well. And Rehoboam, it's, we, make, it's, we, see, we see, is continuing this pattern that was carried on by his father, right? In fact, it gets worse. It gets worse in this next generation. Uh, it's worse than it had ever been before, and it kind of stirs up the anger of the Lord, it says. So we see Rehoboam's struggle here. He sins even more, but that's not, it's not done yet because we go on to a, another generation. In one chapter over, 1 Kings 15, we read about uh, Rehoboam's son, uh, Abijam. I think that's right. Abijam. And this is what it says there. In the 18th year of the reign of uh, Jeroboam, son of Nabat, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have read these scriptures out loud. Abijah, king of Judah, uh, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His, mother name, his mother's name was Makah, daughter of Abishalom. He committed all the sins of his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of, his, of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. So again, we have another example of another successive king following in the bad footsteps of his father, perpetuating another pattern that is negative carrying on the same habits as his father before him. And at this point in the narrative, we're just going, okay, things are quite bad. How are they going to get any better, right? Well, there's good news. There's good news. In 1 Kings 15, chapter 11, or verse 11, excuse me, we are introduced to a guy named Asa, uh, the son of Abijam. And this is what the text tells us about him. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father 
David had done. Asa steps at least partially out from under the pattern of sin that he was handed from three generations before him. And and notice that the text actually still ties him into his past, right? It actually says, like his father David, actually his great-great-grandfather David, Asa was able to step out of some of the destructive patterns and sin of his forefathers and, and realign his life with the pattern and the will of God. Asa shows us in this passage that it is actually possible to break out of these cycles. You know, some of us have received an inheritance from our parents that it, and from our families of origin that does, it doesn't feel like we can break out of. Some of us live in habits and patterns and cycles that it just doesn't feel like we are capable of kind of jumping out of, Right? So it, very often it feels like I am, just the, I am just at the will of these things. But God makes it quite clear to us in the scriptures, and we see in the pattern of the lives of the, king, of the kings, in this passage, these passages specifically, that it is possible, it is possible to get out of those patterns. It is possible to adopt new habits and new patterns and break cycles that, were, that have been, in sometimes even generations in process over our lives, and step into freedom and hope and, new, and newness of life. This is possible. And it's possible because God has made it that way. Because in the person of Jesus, we have been given a new opportunity to step in to a new mode of existence. A new mode of existence, a new way of being in the world. And the person of Jesus holds this out for us. Jesus makes it possible for us to address the destructive experiences and emotional brokenness of our, of our past, of even things, that what the scriptures refer to as a kind of generational sin, to address the patterns and habits developed through hurts in our own lives and pasts, to, to do what at times feels nearly impossible. And, and this is made available to us in just uh, in a couple of ways. And this morning, as, uh, as we conclude this morning, I just want to walk through some of the newness of life that Jesus makes available to us. And, the, and just as a, a, a pointer to help us understand how we break out of these cycles, how we break out of these patterns, how we break out of these habits that keep us bound, keep us broken. So, Two things in particular that we'll think about for the rest of this morning. The first thing that we are given to help us is a new nature. And the second are new habits. We are given new habits. So, first, a new nature. In, in 2 Corinthians verse 5, verses 17 through, and 18, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, he is a new, uh, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And again, the same author, the Apostle Paul, says in Ephesians, as he's writing to a different church, in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24, says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, the scriptures tell us that when we come to faith in Christ, we are literally given a new nature, a new nature, which in the scriptures is often referred to as a lot of different things. One thing you'll realize as you read through the scriptures is that uh, different ideas are referred to in different ways and with different analogies. And the scriptures refer to this new nature or this new self in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that it's referred to in the Old Testament, specifically by the prophet Ezekiel, is about a new heart or a new spirit. Uh, The prophet Ezekiel talks all about how when the Messiah comes, God's people will be, uh, God will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a new heart. And now this is a mystery, right? This is a, I I fully admit, this is a mystery. Note, if you ever have open heart surgery, God forbid, and the doctor opens you up, he's not going to go, a new heart, right? This is, this is a mystery. It's not necessarily a physical reality. There's nothing that can, there's nothing, there's no doctor who can necessarily look inside of you and say, oh, that's a Christian, right? It's not how it works. But the scriptures are quite clear that a person who comes to faith in Christ has received a new nature, a new orientation uh, uh, in their lives and in their loves, in the things they love, in the things they desire, in the things they want, that allows them or enables them to live into the kingdom of God. Uh, The author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro, puts it this way. He says, Jesus declares that only by direct intervention of God can you or I be changed. We require a complete change at the root or at the base of who we are. The new birth, which is a way that Jesus talks about this newness of life, can be described as the action of God whereby his very life and power are implanted in the base of your heart so that the root is transformed. The seed then grows, blossoms, produces fruit from this new supernatural seed. We receive a new heart, a new nature, a new spirit. New heart, new nature, new spirit. These are all ways that the New Testament uses to talk about what's going on here. But notice something. I just want you to notice something. And that is that both the Apostle Paul and Schizero does a great job of describing it in his quote. Talk about this new heart or this new nature not being something that we fully possess. That we fully possess. In, 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 this, in the sense that when this new nature comes, it's not like our old nature is completely wiped away and everything is now good and I can just walk through my life in a completely sinful way, or sinful, geez, uh, in a completely sinless way, right? In Christ, in Christ, a whole new w- way of being has been made available to us. We have been given a new nature, but the realities of our brokenness don't go away, not entirely. I love the analogy of a seed here, of a seed, because the new nature that God, through Christ, implants in our hearts is like a seed. It needs to be watered. It needs to be tended. It needs to be taken care of so that the plant of, of God's newness of life will grow up in our hearts. And this, is what, and this is what the Apostle Paul says, right? 
This how in the Ephesians passage, this, however, is not the way of life you learned, right? You were taught to do it this way, but you're doing it this way. So get back on the newness of life track. Lean into the newness of life that has been made available to you in the person of Christ Jesus. And as you lean into that, right, allow it to grow up in you. Allow it to grow up in your heart. It is kind of like a seed, isn't it? Jesus often uses these analogies of a seed, right, being planted. Like the kingdom of God is like a seed that grows and eventually becomes this big tree, but at, but at the, its beginning is kind of like a seed form that must, and that seed must be tended, watered, fertilized, cared for. And this happens as we grow, as we grow. And so very often in our lives, we have these controlling issues, we have these patterns, we have these uh, dysfunctions that are handed down, that are kind of put on our shoulders, that are handed down to us from our families of origin. We have uh, emotional patterns and ways of being in the world, and it all just seems like too much. And though I know that, G- that God loves me and that Jesus died for my sins, it doesn't feel like I can lean into anything that would ever help me kind of get out of these cycles of sin and dysfunction. But you've been given a new nature. And Paul is always reminding his churches that they have been made new and that they need to lean into that newness of life. That they, they, need to be, they need to be reminded of the fact that there is a newness of life and then they need to lean into it with their actions. With their actions. Which leads to the second thing that we are given, which is new habits. Because how do you water the seed of the newness of life that is made available to us in Christ Jesus? How do we tend this new self, this new nature that is given to us through Jesus? The way we do that is by taking on new habits, by taking on new habits. When Christ comes to us, it is not an automatic get out of sin and dysfunction free card. It's just not. It is an invitation into a new way, new patterns of life to be renewed or changed, to be made progressively more whole and holy. And to do this, one must adopt habits, new practices, and new patterns that will help us grow the seed of God's goodness and grace in our hearts. And Daniel's going to lean into what those practices, some of those practices actually are next week. But the language that the Bible uses of this, of sowing to the Sowing to the spirit rather than sowing to the flesh, of, of feeding the seed that is good rather than the part of our, of our being that is not good, that is destructive, turns out to be borne out in psychological realities in our world as well. Most psychologists today are in agreement that in general, we live according to a specific regime of habits in our lives and that those habits shape our lives. Your morning routine your evening routine, the default way that you deal with stress, the default way that you, re- you respond to your spouse, have every, the default way that you grab your phone and you look at Facebook in the morning and you get all worked up. Um, have any of you ever been in an argument? I'm probably speaking to married people mostly here. Uh, have you ever been in, a, in an argument with your spouse and you're like, oh, this one again. I know, I know all the beats of this one, right? I know exactly how this one will go, right? And sometimes I'm like, what can I say to try to like get out of it? Because I'm bored with this argument, right? I'm bored with it. So I'm going to try to controvert it in some way. 
We have these patterns in our lives, don't we? We have these patterns in our lives. And the only way we get out of the patterns, the habits, the practices of our lives that keep us broken or keep us, um, keep us in, a, in a place of dysfunction, the only way we get out of that is to take on new habits, new patterns, new structures. And this is what it means to, I use this word a lot, but this is what it means to pursue the way of Jesus. Because in the pattern of Jesus' life, he shows us ways of living that lead us towards life and that lead us away from the patterns and habits that we naturally take on that are destructive to our souls. So here's the question. What are the kind of pre-programmed habits and patterns of your life? And again, looking at our past is a great way of determining this. The way you were raised and the way your parents were raised, were raised in large part determines what habits and patterns are naturally occurring in your life. And so until you can identify some of those, it's really hard to break out of them. It's really difficult. So what are those patterns in your life? What are those emotional patterns? What are those emotional habits? What are those practical habits that you have that are controlling you in ways that you might not even be cognizant of? How many of you remember how you got here this morning in the car, right? Was your brain actually working when you were driving here? No, it was a habit. You don't remember what, what color car you, you passed on your drive here, unless he flipped you off or cut you off or something, right? I'm saying he, maybe she, gender inclusive. Uh, you don't remember, right? Because it's a default. And in order to follow Jesus and to be healthy people, we have to set up new defaults, new patterns, new habits. And for every person, this will look different because every person has different habits, habits and patterns. What these are common, these new habits and patterns, what they're commonly called in the church is spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. Habits that disciple our hearts into, lo into loving people and loving God and away from all of that other stuff. You know, examples of this are myriad, right? They're legion. But here's one, here's one. If materialism is a problem for you, if you find yourself loving stuff too much, if you find yourself being consumed by your bank account all the time, whether there's a lot of money in it or not, that's a habit. That's a pattern. Maybe that was handed down to you by your, uh, by your family. I've known people who... Uh, felt financially insecure growing up. And so when they, when they come into adulthood, that colors how they look at money, right? If materialism is a, is a problem for you, if it's a spiritual pattern, if it's a habit in your life, then maybe a new pattern or habit you need to set up is serving the poor, right? Maybe you need to make some friends with some people who are poor, Maybe you need to go serve people in our community who don't have very much and learn new habits, new patterns, new structures. It's so important. Maybe you have a pattern that is negative in some other way. Maybe you have a pattern like me of eating way too many tortilla chips at night, right? I don't know. It's a little one. Maybe you have a, a more serious pattern in your life, right? Of depression. Now, I'm not saying that we can, just, we can just exercise our way out of depression all the time. I'm not trying to make light of it at all. 
But I am saying that part of why we live in some of those patterns is because we haven't set up new ones. And, and cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy is, for a uh, large part, is just about setting up new routines, new habits, new processes. And, he, and he, gang, here's the key. It's not just about like waking up at 5.30 and doing some curls, like both literally and spiritually. It's not like just going and working out is gonna make you a better person. It's that this newness of life that is made available to us in Jesus Christ and his way of life that, it, that uh, we commit to follow when we, when we become Christians linked together with these new habits and patterns that enable us to step into the, all the fullness that God has made available for us. And this is a process. It doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen entirely in any of our lives. We're always going to be broken in some specific or unique way. We're always going to be dealing with issues. Things will always rise to the surface. But there is hope. And there is life. And there is wholeness that Jesus, the person of Jesus, is inviting us into. He's inviting us into. That's what Jesus does. He invites us into wholeness, into health. So this morning, as we conclude, what we're going to do is come to the table of communion. You know, at our church, we practice an open communion, which means you don't need to be a member of our church to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. But when Jesus established communion, the ordinance of communion, you might have heard it referred to as many things. Maybe you've heard it to, uh, referred to as the Eucharist, which is just a Latin word for celebration. Maybe you've heard it referred to as the Lord's table or communion. There's all kinds of words for it. The early Christians called it a love feast, which they caught some flack for. Um, thanks, Jill. Uh, the <laughs> but when we come to the table, when we come to the table, what we are acknowledging again is that, that Christ has died and that Christ is risen and that Christ is coming again. And that in the work of Jesus Christ, newness of life has been available to us. And surprisingly enough, the receiving of communion is a pattern. It is a habit that the church has established to help us be reminded of the fact of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It is just another habit. It's another pattern. It's another rhythm of God's grace in our world that helps to recenter us and refocus us on the truth of who Jesus is. And so it's a fitting way for us to conclude our service this morning. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, after, cup, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. And whoever drinks it, in memory of me. I just lost it. Oh, well. <laughs> the reality is, is that Christ has for all of us the truth of his death and resurrection. At the center of our lives is the reality of his coming to us. And so now... In the name of Jesus, as we receive, allow yourself, allow yourself to be touched by the truth of who Jesus is. If you're in this place and you're like, oh, Nick, that newness of life that you were talking about, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. I don't feel like I have a new self. 
as you receive, as you come to the table this morning, I just ask that you would ask God, remind me of the seed of the new life that you've placed in my heart. Help me to lean into that reality, and I believe that he will. So we'll just take a minute or two. Uh, You can receive here at the table, or you can take uh, the elements back to your seat for a time of reflection. Uh, So the table is open. You can come, uh, and then we'll conclude.